Welcome to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. We've interviewed the chapter authors of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook with the intention of bringing each chapter to life. Our goal is to make learning management not suck. Now let's learn a little bit about the interviewee for this chapter. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Metzger, and today we are joined by Professor Katie Cortez to discuss strategic analysis. Katie is an instructor in the Department of Management at Virginia Tech and has taught in the Business and Economics Department at Hollins University. She contributed to the first edition of the Open Source Fundamentals of Business text, both editions of Business Ethics by Dennis Collins, and wrote the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook chapter, which we will be discussing here today. So let's jump right into it. Strategic analysis is the process that firms use to study and understand the many different layers and aspects of their competitive environment. Why is it so imperative for an organization to not only observe, but also to participate in the competitive environment in which they find themselves? Well, they don't have a choice. Right, The competitive environment exists, and if they want to succeed, they're going to have to deal with it because it exists. There are competitors out there. Nobody operates in a vacuum, so they, they truly don't have a choice. In regards to the micro and macro environment, why should a business worry about what is going on outside of their walls, and how does it affect them? Well, it can affect them positively or negatively, so they should worry, well, pay attention, I guess but really worry. Pay attention on both fronts. So for things that can positively affect them, you want to be able to seize those opportunities. You want to know they're there so that you can go take advantage of them. And for things that are negative, you want to be prepared. For example, automakers right now are dealing with chip shortages. That's been all over the news that has impacted production. And I had read that Toyota had stockpiled several months worth of chips when they started to know that that might be happening. Now, the chip shortage has lasted long enough that even your stockpiles are running low. And so manufacturers are having to prioritize which models go into production and which ones get suspended because they don't have enough chips to do everything. But those are the sorts of decisions you want to make. You don't want them to be forced on you, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So that's kind of talking about strengths and weaknesses of a business in itself. So one thing described in the chapter is SWOT analysis. Right. Could you just uh, go into explaining a little bit more about SWOT analysis? Yes. Yeah, SWOT is sort of your first level basic, here's a tool to analyze what's going on in the world for you. SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And the strengths and weaknesses refer to you as a firm, what you're good at and what you're less good at. And opportunities and threats refer to outside the firm, what's out there, either with your competition or with the world in general, that might present an opportunity or become a threat. I call it the first tool of analysis because there are other tools that are more specific and uh, honestly, a little more helpful. Because with SWOT, even though it's easy to remember and everybody knows it, if you've been through a business school, you know SWOT or you know what it is, or you, at least it rings a bell that you've heard it before. SWOT relies on you to identify strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. 
and to have kind of the imagination and perceptiveness to see them. Whereas we do have other tools like Porter's Five Forces, for example, that tells you exactly what to look for. It puts the burden on you as the observer or analyzer to figure it out. And so that's why the chapter isn't just one paragraph of SWAT and we're done. There's more tools that are a little bit more helpful because they actually point you in the directions of what you're supposed to be looking for. How can a business avoid blind spots of the person who is conducting the SWOT analysis? Probably to use more tools than just SWOT and possibly even to get more than one person to be doing it so that you have more than one set of eyes on the situation. You talked a little bit about other methods of analysis. In your chapter, there are a couple acronyms. How does PESTEL, and you talked about Porter's Five Forces as well, mm -hmm. how do those differ from SWAT and what are some ways that those can be used? Okay, they differ from SWAT in that they tell you exactly what to look at. They are tools for specific aspects of the environment, and they give you sort of a checklist of what to look for. So, for example, SWAT, strengths and weaknesses are internal to the firm. Opportunities and threats are external to the firm. But there's a few layers to external. There's the world. There's your competitors. Pestel is the tool to do the world. Porter's Five Forces is the tool to do your competitors. Pestel literally gives you a checklist of what to look at in the world. So political forces, economic forces, sociocultural forces, technological forces, environmental forces, and legal forces. So it, instead of just saying opportunities and threats, go find some, it says, look at these things and see if there's anything going on there. So it's a little bit of a nudge in the direction of some broad categories where things might be happening. So Porter's Five Forces would be more... It's the same thing for your competitors. So it gives you a list of five things to look at for your industry competitive situation. So the firms that you are directly competing against by offering similar products to similar customers. So Porter's Five Forces says, look at rivalry. So your actual competitors and how hard you're fighting each other for customers. Look at whether your industry is vulnerable to new companies coming in and taking significant market share, that's threat of new entrants, whether your suppliers have significant power in your industry. So in your day-to-day -day work environment where you are making your good or your service and delivering it to customers, do your suppliers have the ability to mess that up for you, basically? So supplier power, and then customers can also have power. Depending on the industry, customers can have power in the form of choices. Choices usually translate into customers having some power over how much they pay. As in, I can threaten to go to somebody else if they offer me a better deal. So if you want my business, you need to offer me a good deal too. So that would be customers putting pressure on prices. And then the fifth force in Porter's Five Forces is threat of substitutes. And substitutes is. So you've got your rivals, you've got your industry. So whatever that industry is, that group of immediate competitors. Substitutes are other companies that are doing similar, adjacent, things that customers will accept as reasonable or valid substitutes for what you're offering them. And so they're not your direct competitors, 
but they do have the ability to attract your customers. So for example, if you're a four-year residential university with dorms and all that stuff, community colleges can be a substitute. They can attract some of your customers away. Trade schools can attract your customers. So looking at a pestle force of the economy, minimum wage is not going up, but actual wages are going up. People who want to hire have to offer more and more money just to get people to come work for them. So you'll see if you drive down the street, you'll see the fast food signs saying now hiring. And I think you guys are in Connecticut, so I don't know what mm -hmm. numbers are popping up on your boards, but down here, we are seeing routinely 12, 13, 14, even $15 an hour popping up on these signs when federal minimum wage is still $7.25. Mm -hmm. So there are companies offering double just to get people to come work, and they still aren't getting enough people to come work. And that's why the line is so long at the drive through As those wages keep going up, people might be tempted not to go to college at all. You can get a job that can pay you enough, theoretically. The 15 might not do it, but you might be you know, up in another category of work and wage inflation is going up everywhere. And you might be able to find a job that satisfies you enough financially and covers your needs well enough that investing six figures in a four-year education is not a reasonable decision. No longer viable or right. maybe even a better option at this point. Right. Before, when I was going to college, I had friends who would be in like the restaurant industry and they'd be coming home and walking out with hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Those weekend tips are awesome, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And they, they really make are. you feel dumb, right? That mm -hmm. you are spending time and money. And so not only are you spending time and money, but the time and money you're spending isn't even making you any money back. Yeah. You know, you're delaying your reward. Now, the more money people are making without going to college the more that's going to make you feel dumber and dumber until you say, you know what, I don't need to put $100,000 into higher education when I can go out and get a job today that will pay me today instead of me paying it, right? So that's a combination of economic forces from PESTEL and substitutes for the industry. So a four-year college would theoretically worry. I know the one I'm at probably doesn't worry that much. They maybe should, but we have enough demand that we don't worry. But certainly I have students who are currently working or who worked before they came to school or took a year off or are coming back to school. And yeah, that's a decision that individual students, i.e. customers, would be making. And a substitute such as a decent paying job that's already available without a college degree would be an attractive substitute to investing in four years of higher education. In your opinion, is there a threshold that a rival would cross and then you would have to worry about them? Because there's always going to be rivalry and competition, but I feel like there are some companies or some other competing firms that can exist and you won't really have to worry about them because they won't affect you. Is there um, a certain point that you have to concern yourself with other businesses? I'll be honest, I'm, I can't remember if it's in the chapter. I, I'm not sure that it is. No, I think it is. It's industry groups. Mm. So when we talk about rivalry, the, the first thing you have to decide is what industry are you talking about? 
And you can't define your industries as broadly as, say, retail, because then everybody is your rival and evaluating your rivals doesn't give you any useful information because you're talking about everybody and that's really not helpful anymore. Yeah. So industry groups are kind of where you break it down into who are you really supposed to be worried about? So getting back to your question, out of all the different companies, who do you really lose sleep over at night? And I believe I talked in the chapter about general retail, like Walmart and Target Mm -hmm. and department stores like Macy's or Nordstrom. That's an example of industry groups where you have uh, general retailers, stores that sell a wide variety of stuff. I'm not talking about specialty stores like Best Buy or uh, GameStop or someplace like that, but a store that sells a wide variety of things. So uh, Walmart sells pretty much everything. Target also. Macy's, they don't sell groceries, but they sell clothing for all people and housewares. Nordstrom is clothing. So the Walmart manager doesn't worry about Macy's or Nordstrom, right? And the Nordstrom manager does not lose any sleep at night over what Walmart is doing. Okay. And that's because they are not direct competitors. Even though their industry might, if we even just limited to clothing sales, all four stores sell clothing, right? Mm-hmm. So you could say they're all in the in- same industry, but industry groups is where you kind of separate them out a little bit and see who's really competing with whom. Target and Walmart may be competing against each other. And so the target manager and the Walmart manager will worry a little bit about what each other is doing. And Nordstrom and Macy's tend to be in the same malls. And so the Nordstrom manager, she might say, I don't care about Macy's, but that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. Nordstrom may consider themselves as a brand to be superior to Macy's, but they're in the same mall. Shoppers walking from one end to the other have both stores as a choice, Mm -hmm. right? Nordstrom tries to attract customers to Nordstrom and Macy's to Macy's. Macy's says, well, we're not as expensive as Nordstrom and we have sales. And Nordstrom says, but we're better than Macy's. We're worth the extra money, right? But those two would worry about each other, but neither of them worries about Walmart. Mm Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question, do you worry about some and not about others? Yes. And probably the way to figure it out is the ones that you are most likely to share customers with. If your typical customer is making a choice between two or three places, those are the two or three places you need to worry about. You were talking about sharing customers and trying to differentiate yourself between what you were providing and another business. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about getting an advantage over the competition. Can you talk a little bit about the value chain and why resources and capabilities are so important to a firm's competitive advantage? Okay. So competitive advantage is the end game, right? We want to win. Winning means that we do better than our rivals, our direct competitors. So winning for Walmart doesn't mean beating Nordstrom it means beating Target, right? And winning for Target means getting somewhere close to Walmart. (laughs) And it means not being anywhere near Nordstrom. They don't care about Nordstrom. And so we can define winning in terms of market share. We can define winning in terms of profitability. We don't do it in terms of revenue because then we can't compare companies of different sizes and everybody would lose against Walmart and Apple. So we do profitability, not profit, but profitability. So percentage, not raw dollars. 
so the competitive advantage is our end game. We want to do better. Now, the way we do better is we attract customers. We have two ways to attract customers. We offer them a better deal or we offer them a better product. Okay? Now, VRIO, and that's the strengths and weaknesses part of SWOT. And when you do SWOT, you're just, tell me some things you're good at and some things you're not good at. Imagine. Right. It's probably easier to find blind spots there than anywhere else because, of course, everybody's good at everything and not bad at anything. No, so, of course, you know, so um, I'm the best and I've never been bad. Right. And companies absolutely feel the same way because it's people who are making these assessments and they love their companies. And so, yeah. But VRIO asks you to pick things that you do. Don't decide if you're good or bad at them, just things that you do and evaluate those things. So V stands for, is it valuable? R, is it rare? I, is it difficult to imitate? And O, is the organization or is the firm organized? The O is for organized. To capture the value of that thing you do. And that's the hard one to explain. So I'll get to that one last. You go through things that you do. So let's take an example. So Walmart wins by offering not the better product, but the lower price. Okay, they've made that decision. We're going to go with lower prices. And so VRIO says low prices. This is something you do. Is this valuable to Walmart? Well, is it valuable to Walmart to have the best deal? Absolutely. It's the basis for their customer flow, right? People go there because they know they'll find it and they'll find it cheap. So yes, it's valuable. Is it unusual to be able to offer low prices at the level and at the scale that Walmart does. It is relatively unusual. Target tries, and Target's prices probably really aren't that different in a lot of categories than Walmart's. But mm. overall, if you have a basket of stuff from Walmart and a basket of the same or equivalent stuff at Target, it'll cost a little more at Target. Amazon, which 10 years ago wasn't necessarily considered to be a rival, it was more of a substitute than a rival, has moved into rivalry category by also selling everything. But even Amazon, which started out with this idea of we're going to offer low prices, has stepped back a little bit on that. It's still possible if Walmart has it, it may still be cheaper than it is at Amazon. So it is rare to be able to offer low prices as effectively as Walmart does. Now, is it hard to copy that? Well, what does it take for Walmart to be able to offer those low prices? What would you be copying exactly? That's where the value chain comes in. Walmart's low prices are supported by all the activities in the value chain that they do in the course of running their business. And the idea is, if you want to have the lowest prices, you have to attack every part of your value chain and take the excess money out of it. So your logistics, inbound logistics, getting product into your stores, you squeeze your suppliers as hard as you can to get the best deal you can, and Walmart is certainly known for that. Not just the manufacturers who make the, the stuff that Walmart sells, but also Walmart itself. The physical effort of transporting stuff from cargo ships to individual stores, the part that Walmart does with their distribution centers, their warehouses, their trucks, their trucking routes, all of that, they manage that for the highest efficiency that they can in order to lower the cost to themselves. So they try to make their suppliers take less money. 
They get their deliveries as efficient as they can. Their store operations, they try to take as much money out of it as they can. So they will pay their employees a little less. They will decorate their stores a little less. A Walmart typically does not look as nice as a Target and certainly not as nice as a Nordstrom. So they'll decorate their stores a little less. Their shelving will be a little less you know, nice, but certainly still functional. Then the effort that they put to keep track of inventory, get stuff on shelves, make sure that they're stocked and make sure which products to stock in any given store. They have automated that so that it is also as inexpensive as possible. As labor prices have crept up, they have introduced more and more self-checkouts to get rid of labor as they're having trouble hiring anyway they're replacing the labor with technology that's an upfront investment but a long-term savings and then what else advertising you don't see celebrity endorsements for walmart the quality of the products in the stores i mean all of these things walmart does as ruthlessly efficiently as they can so that they don't spend money on it so that their costs are low so that then they can still charge low prices and still make a profit. And they are better at that than anybody else. So valuable, rare, difficult to imitate, and the organized to capture value is the value chain part. Are they supporting this ability to charge low prices? Are they supporting that throughout their value chain activities? So that's like every effort that they put forward all is focused on that one thing. Right. I think that if you go to Walmart and you see them stocking shelves, the boxes have stamped on them. Do not destroy or recycle this box. Every box saved saves the company 10 cents. Yeah. They do that at every single place they can within the company. Little bits here and there all add up to them being able to charge less. It is kind of stunning, staggering to think a corporation that size would worry can't. about a dime for a box. Yes. But like the reason it is that big is because of that, that specific reason. Right. That's more of a sign of their philosophy than yeah. that they're worried about that particular box. Exactly. It's reminding people we care about how much money you're spending. That's wild. And then to kind of bring everything together, all of these analyses, all of these different acronyms, Porter's Five Forces, PESTLE, SWAT, VRIO, it all comes together at the end of this chapter to talk about creating a strategic position. Right. Or at least contextualizing the company's strategic position. Can you, can you go into that a little bit? Okay. So you do all this analysis and you mm -hmm. figure out what is the state of my industry, my company, my opportunities? What kind of business do I think I can run successfully? Right. What kinds of activities will produce competitive advantage for me? Can I be a cost leader given how my competitors are running their businesses? Can I be a differentiator given the other products that are out there for customers? Can I successfully offer this product given the state of suppliers that exists? So you ask all of those questions as you're doing your analysis, and then you come to a point where you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a cost leader, meaning I'm going to offer my customers a good deal. Now, if you want to have competitive advantage, it can't just be a random good deal. It has to be a better deal, mm. right? 
you have to be able to offer lower prices than your competition. The point is to get customers to come to you. We're pretty smart nowadays. We can find that good deal. We can smell out the best price. So you have to have it. Think about driving around to find the cheapest gas station, mm -hmm. right? It's not that hard to do. And if you want something you know, more complicated than gas, you just get online or even get on your phone and, and click in an app and you can find where's the best price. And so if you want to be a cost leader, you have a pretty big job to do, and that's to figure out how to offer your product or service for less than other people are offering it for. Now, if you think you can't do that, then your other option is to differentiate. And basically that is make your product worth the extra money, right? You're not going to be the best deal. So why should people buy you anyway? Mm -hmm. Now, certainly there are customers who don't shop based on price. That doesn't mean that they're just randomly picking stuff. They're still shopping based on some criteria, trendy or fashionable brands a lot of times. They are both still attracting people away from the best deal. Now, the typical Macy's customer is probably still looking for a decent deal. Mm. So they'll go to those mid-tier department stores and see you know, what they'd like. And TJ Maxx would be a threat to Macy's because they're selling some of the same brands for quite a lot less money. TJ Maxx is not a threat to Nordstrom because TJ Maxx does not sell Nordstrom's brands and Nordstrom is not probably selling to people who care about a deal. They are there for the status mm. of carrying that Nordstrom bag and wearing that designer brand. Yeah. And they are willing to pay for that. And so Nordstrom has those customers. Now, those customers could shop directly from a lot of those designers, right? Anything that's in a Nordstrom can be found at another place. They don't have an, an exclusivity. Right. So if you find a brand in Nordstrom that you want, you can probably also find it online at that brand's online store if you don't live in a city that has their own actual store. Mm -hmm. You could find it in a Neiman Marcus or a Saks Fifth Avenue, another top-tier department store. They're offering the convenience of having them all in the same place so that you don't have to go from store to store to store. You can get it all at once. So even the Nordstrom bag has value when you're walking through the mall carrying it. So you can be the best deal or you can attract customers by offering something that they value. So there's actually four basic business level strategies. Cost leadership and differentiation are two. What are the other two? You can focus because you have focus differentiation and focus cost leadership. What focus is, is you find a little niche in the market that you can nail, right? You can get exactly what they want. It's only a specific market or a specific type of product that you only have. You're usually not a huge company because you're not selling to the whole world. You're selling to people who want a specific thing or selling to people in a specific place. And so you can be a focused cost leader, but you can also be a focused differentiator. Mm -hmm. And focused differentiator happens more often than focused cost leadership. Usually if you are going to the pain of focusing, giving away 90% of the market to concentrate on 10, you're gonna try to be premium rather than, hey, let's take that 10% of the market and then take them for every quarter they have. You're not mm -hmm. gonna do that. You're gonna go take them for every 10,000 they have, right? Mm -hmm. So you're gonna be a focused differentiator. You're gonna find something that a certain group of people just must have yours. The example you use in your chapter is a uh, snowboard binding company, which is perfect 
Perfectly niche. Exactly. They don't even make the snowboard. They just make the bindings. That's right. They don't even make the boots. They just make the bindings. Yep. One of my daughters is a skateboarder. And so decks, trucks, wheels. Bindings. Three different companies. Sure. Right? I mean, you can buy a skateboard you can eat, at a Yeah, store. you can go even like further down. Yeah, it's... Oh, uh, bearings. Bearings. I knew there was a fourth thing. So yeah. bearings. So the wheels, the bearings, the trucks, and the deck. Oh, and the grip tape. Mm-hmm. So those are the only five things that make up a skateboard. And yet you have five different companies mm-hmm. who specialize in just one of those things and say, no, we're the best one. As small as that market is, there are a lot of companies in each of those categories. In grip tape, there's really only two or three. There are a couple of bearing companies. Mm-hmm. There are several companies that make wheels. Oh, yeah. And they will make wheels for performance. They will make wheels that are fashionable, that have designs on them of different kinds, different sizes. Trucks, there's a couple of companies. And then decks. Oh, my goodness. There's several companies that make decks. And decks are decks, right? It's plywood. It's wood. But it's it's, not. It's so much more than that. You know how they differentiate is the designs Mm -hmm. and the celebrity endorsement. Mm-hmm. Now, celebrity a little bit loosely because 99.9% of the world wouldn't recognize some of these celebrities. But, but the people who would recognize the market, them, it right, means so much. Skateboarders, yeah. yes. Those guys are celebrities. And to get a deck with a certain skateboarder's name on it, mm-hmm. that's enough to attract customers. And so different companies will sign on different riders to be part of their company so that they can offer decks with their name on it and their design, and then they'll get different artists. Can you do a kickflip? Oh, I can't. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't ride. You know a lot about skateboarding. <laughs> That's mom taking an interest in her kid and listening to all the reasons why I should spend that much money on mm-hmm. a deck, right? Mm-hmm. When you can go to Walmart and buy a deck for $25, why should I spend $85 on just the wooden part? And she's got answers. Oh, she's got answers. And I listened, you know, I listened. So $25 deck at Walmart, Mm -hmm. a custom built deck can cost you $200 easily. Oh yeah. When you buy all the different parts, but that's focused differentiation. Each of those companies says, no, this is the part that you want. They work to build the coolness of their brand. That's like a micro example, but all fashion designers do that right? Build the coolness of their brand. Mm-hmm. Apple does that. Students have Apple laptops. Why? The world does not run on Apple. And yet you guys buy Apple laptops. Because the youth are the trend makers. Apple has made a concerted effort to establish itself as a brand that is cool and awesome. And if you yep. have an Apple, you know, think different. You are right? relevant. You're different. Yeah. You're unique. You have an mm-hmm. Apple. And good luck when you go to work at a big consulting firm that's full of PCs. But oh even they've had to adapt. <laughs> yeah. Because you guys are all coming in with no PC skills. All right, you can have a Mac. At the end of the day, they're both laptops. They can both do pretty much the same thing. Why is an Apple laptop worth more than a Microsoft or a Dell or any other brand? Apple's brand, the actual coolness, reputation, image of its brand has added a tremendous amount of value to their company. Mm -hmm. I I don't have a Mac because 
I learned PC and, and Macs confuse me, but I have an iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. We're all susceptible to this is the cool phone. If you see ads on TV for new phones or online, oh, this one folds and this one does this and this one does that. They're all trying to be cool mm -hmm. because they know that that's where the, the bar is set. Very interesting. So many aspects that go into maintaining a competitive edge. And I feel like we did a pretty good job of covering them today. I think we got through most of the bases. Yeah. The, um, the meat and potatoes. Yeah. Is, is there anything you want to hit on before we go? You did a great job with pulling in the business level competitive strategies. I, I was like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah. I, I think that you can't just pick one. Yeah. You have to do the, the, the research first. And the research means the, the SWAT, the Porter's Five Forces, the Pastola V Rio. You have to do kind of your groundwork. So even if you're an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, you've got this idea, uh, I want to start a vegan restaurant. You have to do the groundwork and figure out, is this something that can work? In entrepreneurship, you do a business plan. And so you go through all the steps of figuring out your business. And the foundational step is to do that analysis to see if, if it's even a viable idea. If you decide, yes, it is a viable idea, where do I fit in? Mm -hmm. And that's the point where you make your decisions on cost leader or differentiator. But first you have to figure out what's the situation before you can figure out how you can fit into it. It's all terribly interesting. This I'm is glad. Very... All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Cortez. We really appreciate your time. I'm happy to do it. I enjoyed it. Thank you Excellent. for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. Be sure to check the show notes for resources related to this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.